Today's show is brought to you in part by TheAthleteBook.com. If your business is looking to hire talented team members, post your openings on TheAthleteBook.com. They host virtual hiring events that connect college, Olympic, and pro athlete to job opportunities. TheAthleteBook.com offers diversity recruiting solutions, personality trait matching to your top employees. CEO Ryan Drummond is a friend, former Division I athlete, and seasoned talent strategist. TheAthleteBook.com works with small businesses as well as pro sports teams, Amazon, Yelp, J.P. Morgan Chase, GE, and Under Armour to help them hire the best. Live from our studio in Babson Park, Massachusetts, it's the Fred Obie Show, where we unpack history to positively impact the future. I am Fred Opie, your host. Thanks for joining us live or listening to the podcast. Many of the guests on this show who have shared their oral histories have talked about the positive impact of Hall of Fame coach Roy Simmons Jr. on their lives. His peers, like his college teammate Jim Brown, call him Slugger because he boxed during his undergraduate years at Syracuse University, where his father, Roy Simmons Sr., served as a boxing coach, football coach, and lacrosse coach. Those of us who played for him refer to him as Simmy and call him face-to-face coach. I predict this will be one of the most popular interviews in this show's three-year history, an interview with Renaissance man Roy Simmons Jr., who at the time of the interview in October 2019 was in his mid-80s. He moves slower but still tells one great story after another. Many thanks to his son Ronnie for helping me set up the interview and to Coach for being willing to sit down with me. Before the interview, some house cleaning about the show. As I mentioned, the show is now in its third season. The interview you're going to hear today required me to travel to Syracuse, spend a delightful almost two hours with Coach, and thereafter about 20 hours of editing when I got back home. I've been interviewing attorneys to represent me for a great initiative, and they charge approximately $300 to $400 per hour. So let's do the math at a rate at $350 per hour to produce this segment. 350 times 20 hours equals $7,000. That's if I was getting paid, but now I'm not. I have loved producing this show over the last three years, but now it's time to ask. If you like the work that we produce on this show, show your support on our newly created Patreon page, which is listed in our show notes, and I'll mention several times here. Support the show and get access to extra content and more at patreon.com backslash Fred Show. For example, an extra from today's interview entitled Simi Thinking Outside the Box is available at patreon.com backslash Fred Show. You can now obtain an advanced audiobook copy of my latest book, The Super 7, at patreon.com backslash Fred Show. Every week and month, I will be posting additional content for those who want to pay for it. I welcome suggestions on the content that you're willing to pay at patreon.com backslash Fred Show. Today, you will also hear our first underwriter for the show and a related commercial. It's The Athlete Book. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact us at our new email, info at fredopi.com. Go visit our new website and the store at fredopispeaks.com. Now, on to the interview with Roy Simmons, Jr. We're here in Fayetteville? Fayetteville. Fayetteville. Fayetteville at the home of Coach Roy Simmons, Jr. 
I want to ask you about Roy Simmons Jr., the artist. When did the interest in art first start, mm -hmm. and how did your parents cultivate it? I look back on it myself from time to time to see what influenced me. I was a military brat. My father was in the Navy during the Second World War, and he, he took the family, my sister and me, and my mother, wherever he went. And uh, he was first in uh, Athens, Georgia. Well, that was an eye-opener for me to see the South at that time. Then we moved on to California. And I remember seeing Japanese people being put in trucks and uh, put in internment camps. And uh, my dad would take me to work to the base, the naval base. I saw a lot of airplanes and aircraft carriers brought back, you know, holes in them and scorched and uh, quite an eye-opener for a young kid to see all that bullet-riddled equipment. And then we went back uh, east again before the war was over, about 1943, went to uh, St. Paul, Minnesota. So I saw the Midwest in that way and, and, the, and the kids. And, you know, I, uh, I had to make friends in all the different places. There's a lot of ethnicity to Georgia, ethnicity in California with all the Mexican kids. And uh, my eyes were open a lot. Maybe that wouldn't have happened if, if I hadn't traveled the way I did. And my mother was probably instrumental, and, and she would take me to museums and different things. Uh, as a young kid, she had an interest, so she dragged me along, and uh, <laughs> I had an interest also. So it's, it's, it probably started that way when I was very young. My mother applauded it. My father said, well, that's fine. If uh, I didn't start out in art, in fine arts, but... Uh, I had a couple teammates that were fine arts majors. Uh, oddly enough, one of them was a defenseman by the name of Jim Ridlon, and he went on to play for the Dallas Cowboys. He was all pro for the Dallas Cowboys. He was on my lacrosse team. He played football, too. He played for, for my dad in football. And Oren Lyons, first American, he was our goalie. He was a painting major, beautiful paintings. He did a, a portrait of my dad, gave him his senior year, Without my dad sitting for it, it's just from memory, it's just terrific. So those two guys were on my team that were friends on and off the field. And uh, I was a uh, phys ed major, first year. Is that how you met your wife, as a, both from phys ed major? No, I met her as a, as, a, uh, as a major in Newhouse on the campus. She changed her major to uh, phys ed, uh -huh. so she's a phys ed grad. I was in... Uh, Phys ed for three years at the university, and every time I'd go to practice for lacrosse, there would be my defenseman and my goalie friend, both from the fine arts, and they'd just come from a, a studio and having a lot of fun, and, and uh, I'd look at their, their work, their sketchbooks and whatnot, and they said, why don't you change your major? You don't want to be a phys ed guy banging a ball around a gymnasium the rest of your life. Why don't you become a fine artist and come join us? So my junior year, after phys ed, I changed my major to, uh, to fine arts, uh, sculpture in particular. There was a, a great sculptor, mm -hmm. Ivan Mestrovic, very, very well known at Syracuse at the time, internationally known. And I'd go down to watch him. Uh, I was fascinated by watching him climb a scaffold and did these big heroic statues in clay. All that kind of uh, 
interested me and uh, teased me in a way. So I uh, switched my major to fine arts after three years of physical education. So I had to go to school an extra year. It took me five years to get out instead of four, and I got out with a fine arts degree. That sometimes surprises people. They think that, uh, geez, the lacrosse coach, uh, how could he be an artist also? But I, I graduated from Syracuse with a, a degree in sculpture. And uh, so obviously my love for art goes way back to college days. I had to live somehow. I could work with my hands, which I did. I owned a frame shop gallery. But uh, I also practiced what I knew of art with sculpture. I started with sculpture. Uh, right now I, I've turned to collage for a medium. But uh, I, uh, I had to do something to uh, augment my, uh, my income. Uh, I coached the freshman team at Syracuse. That's when freshmen had to be, uh, you had to have a freshman team because uh, you couldn't play varsity until you were a sophomore in college. That was an NCAA rule, which changed in 1970. So now freshmen can play the varsity if, if they're good enough. There are very few freshman teams around anymore. So I was freshman coach with practically no salary at all. And I had to live, I had three children and uh, a young, young bride and I had three children by the time I was uh, 25 years old so uh, that's a lot of milk and uh, a lot of cereal so uh, I had to live by my wits and uh, my wits turned to fine arts so I did practice sculpture and uh, I did show a lot of places uh, I had two one-man shows at the local museum here the Everson Museum I've shown all the way from New England all the way out to the Midwest different situations, shows, single shows, and, and also um, group shows. That, that was a, maybe a sometimes source of income. But I did teach art at Syracuse University, another thing that people found interesting, that I, I was teaching fine arts in the fine arts school part-time. They figured that I, uh, I could start a class at 8 o'clock in the morning and I'd be through by noon. That's the time that lacrosse players are in class. So there's no practice until the afternoon. So they figured that I could spend my mornings being a professor of art. Oh, I did that for about five or six years until I felt that uh, I'd go back to my office at noon and uh, I will miss a father and a son who came by to see. They, the boy was a junior, going to be a senior, and they'd come by to see me, and I wouldn't be there. Twelve o'clock, I had to get a lesson planned to, together for practice, and uh, I had to do a little bit of a recruiting and uh, planning for uh, our next trip, our next game, schedule making. There are a lot of things that you have to do that, that don't show to the public. Uh, it's a, it's a full-time job. I had a bent for presenting things for people when they bring their artwork in or bought something from me. Well, that's how I lived. I lived by my wits, actually. I lived with my hands. My interest in the African sculpture started and I was interested in that, too. I was selling that periodically, making picture frames, trying to keep these three kids uh, clothed and fed. That was my uh, focus. Waiting for the head coach to retire. And, uh, <laughs> Your dad. And my father, did, yeah. Did you know what was going to happen, or did you just... There, you know, there's been a number of coaches like that. Yeah. And people were saying, when is this guy going to retire? How was that for you? I love the game. Obviously, I love the game more than anything. And I was this freshman coach for 12 years. 
I thought I was going to be a freshman coach for about eight. And uh, there was a mandatory retirement at the university mm. for professors. It was 65. When he got to be 65, he asked for an extension. Board granted him three more years, so I'll stay here with the freshman team. And uh, when he gets to be 68, he'll have to retire. And he got to 68, he asked for another extension. <laughs> and they gave him two more years because they loved him. Really part of the university because he coached three different sports. He was also in city politics. Did he continue to coach the three sports with each extension or just lacrosse? He continued with football and lacrosse. Finally retired uh, in 1970, and I took over. And my first competitive season was 1971. My 12 years of freshman coach, and then I coached in 1998. So I, I gave it 40 years of coaching, and my dad gave it 45 years ahead of me. So that's a lot of, a lot of Simmonses. We're going to go to a commercial break, and then we'll be back with more with our interview with Roy Simmons Jr. Check out our podcast archive and review the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. You can purchase a copy of my autobiography slash career advice, Start With Your Gift, on Amazon.com. We are the sum total of the people we spend time with and the books we read. Be a difference maker right now. Purchase two or more paperback copies of Start With Your Gift. Give them away and make a positive impact on someone's life. The book is available in digital form as an ebook and audiobook. Now, back to our interview with Roy Simmons Jr. Who are your inspirations as artists? Uh, one of my mentors was a man in New York, an artist in New York, and his name was Leo Manso. He was an artist's artist. I met him uh, in the summertime, probably 1980. I won a scholarship uh, through the mail. I, I, I answered uh, a scholarship. Uh, offer uh, that the New York Times put out, and uh, the winner would get a, a tuition-free to his school, uh, Leo Manso's school, in the summertime. I hadn't met the man up to that time. I found the ad for the, the competition was in the New York Times, and I cut it out, and I filled out, and then I sent my work in to this man, uh, Leo Manso. I entered the contest, and I won. But in the summertime, uh, he was on Cape Cod. That's where the school was, so... Uh, uh, I won the I won the uh, contest, and my my prize was a uh, free tuition to a school for the summer, and that's how I met him. While I was coaching, in the summertime, and uh, my summers were spent uh, practicing in my art. Uh, this man was a great part of my life. I got to know him quite well, uh, not as a student in his school, but also as a friend. As a friend, and, and, and I'd be in his studio in New York when I, in the off season, I'd go down to New York to see di- different uh, museums and whatnot. I would go to his museum, his uh, studio, and he would a lot have had a lot of African sculpture around the studio. And I said, "What are you doing with the African sculpture? You know, it has nothing to do with your art." And he said, "Well, as an artist, you got to have something that you can sell. If you can't sell your work, you might be able to sell something else related to the art." So lots of times people come to look at my paintings. They don't buy one, but they might buy a piece of African sculpture. So that's my backup. Do you like African art? I said, well, I I don't know much about it, but I'd like to learn. You teach me. He said, I'll do better than that. I'll take you to Africa. I wound up going to Africa with him. Uh, I probably should have been back in the office uh, doing X's and O's. 
I had quite an experience with him. He knew where to go in West Africa because he'd been there before. Pretty rough, West Africa. I can remember getting inoculations to get through customs. I went to a federal doctor, a federally-based doctor, asked me where I was going, and I told him the country I was going to. And he looked it up in his book, and he said, if I gave you a shot for every one of those countries, I'd kill you. He said, no one goes there. I, I give shots all the time to people that travel, but nobody goes to West Africa except you. And I said, I'm going with my, my mentor, my, my painter friend, and uh, he, he's been there before, and I feel safe. And, and so I went, and uh, I went to Mali, and I went to Benin, and a few other countries. Uh, I spent a little time in, uh, in Morocco on the way in. Quite an eye-opener to me. Uh, to travel like that with a man who, who had studied some of the sculpture, and he knew some of the the dealers there, and he knew what to do and how to do it. We went through Paris on the way there. I'd never been to Paris, and uh, spent some time there and museums and whatnot. And uh, so I got to know this man, Mr. Manso, quite well. And then every summer when I went back to the Cape, not to his school this time, but on my own, I had a gallery and was making picture frames to, to, to pay the bills. I spent a lot of time with him on the Cape and his family, and uh, so he was a great part of my life, and uh, we lost him a couple of years ago. He taught in New York. He taught, taught in uh, Cooper Union and uh, Art Students League, and uh, then he had me as a friend, and he taught me a lot. Just being near him and listening to him, he taught me. mentor I had, a Dr. James Reed, the man who was a... Uh, scholar. He went to Princeton and Stanford, and he was one of the foremost uh, experts on pre-Columbian textiles. And uh, I used to go down to Peru uh, because of him, and I was with him a lot in the markets down there in, in Peru, Machu Picchu, and in Lima, and Cusco, and, and he taught me a lot about uh, pre-Columbian things in, in Peru. A brilliant man. Uh, he used to give, uh, after he retired from the army, well-decorated. He used to go on these uh, uh, cruises that they have that go around the world and go around Africa, go around uh, uh, South America, and he would give lectures, depending on where the boat was, opposite, and he could talk about anything. Uh, history, music, uh, art, and uh, you know, he had that, that steel trap mind where he knew literature, he knew uh, music, uh, he knew history. Just an amazing person. Just fascinating to be around. People of that nature, you know, that that have that kind of background, that kind of knowledge, uh, intellectually, I learned more from him, uh, traveling with him, better than a classroom could ever be. It was life I was learning. That also took me away, <laughs> away from lacrosse field. So I feel blessed that I had a pretty good run in 40 years in lacrosse. Maybe it could have been better but it couldn't have been much better. I have a, a studio now, and uh, I'm retired, so I can give it a little more time practicing in my art. What advice would you give to someone who wants to be an artist? Depending on how you approach art, and if you approach it from a, a technical sense, if you're going to do like illustration or get involved in advertising art, uh, that's a little more serious. If you say, well, I want to be a painter or I want to be a sculptor, then I say to them, uh, 
you can't live like that, you have to teach. If you look at the history of most of the great artists in the world, if you look at their life, the chronology of their life, somewhere along the way, the great artist uh, had to teach at one point, uh, just to keep the wolf from the door. If you're gonna live by your wits, your mind and your hands, and convince other people to give you enough money to live, you better be pretty damn good. You might have to grow a bit, and while you're growing, you have to eat. And so you better find a teaching job. Most of my teachers, fine arts school also, painters and sculptors, and they lived off of teaching, not their, their work. I think Mike Powell is a great example. He plays the guitar and, and he composes all his own songs, his lyrics. He found a love for that, fairly successful at it. He works at it very hard. He writes all his songs. So he's, he's, you, don't, you can't compare him to anybody else because he sings only his own work, not other people's work. He has enough faith in that. Uh, he works with his hands also. He makes uh, custom furniture for people. He's multifaceted in the fact that he can write, he can sing, play the harmonica. He makes custom-made furniture for people. That keeps his young bride and his young daughter uh, fed and clothed. And so you have to have something to lean back on. Did you see any of Michael's creative parts of his life when he played with you? Were you surprised when this happened later, or you saw it early? I saw it early. I didn't know that it'd get to this point. When he came to Syracuse, he was teaching himself the guitar, and he was writing songs. But I said to him, Michael, why don't you enroll in the music school and major in uh, guitar? After four years of guitar, you'd be pretty damn good. And then you can write your songs along the way and, uh, and play lacrosse. He didn't do that. He took a course in general studies his freshman year, and he, he took an elective course in uh, the music school uh, in guitar. And uh, he was in it for maybe a month or so, and then he dropped, he dropped out of the music school. And he said, no, it's only classical guitar. Mm -hmm. They won't teach me what I want. He wanted, you know, uh, folk guitar. He said, no, I better, I'm going to learn it on my own. So he went through school without uh, any kind of music background, but he always had the guitar teaching himself, and it was writing all the time. But uh, he, he didn't perform at all in college. All that came a little bit later. Anybody who I say, I'm going to see Coach today, I'm going to interview him, they'll say he's, he's extremely gifted as a speaker. We never know what's going to come out your mouth when you get up <laughs> to the mic, but we all sit, sit there in anticipation. So here's a question for you. When did you realize that you had a gift as a speaker? And then second question, how do you prepare when you're about to go give a speech? Well, sometimes I get caught. I'm, I'm a little bit caught this weekend. Uh, I'm going to Chicago for Casey Powell because he invited me to come out, and he said, uh, I want you to say a few words, you know. What he really wants from me, I probably won't know until Saturday night. Uh, so that way I have to be flexible. I think I learned along the way. I, uh, I was giving a, a speech one day for uh, Pop Warner football a team uh, that had won a championship on the eastern side of Syracuse, and they were going to have a championship banquet, and I was a, a guest speaker. I prepared the best I could, but 
I knew the age of the kids. I thought I was pretty well prepared. And I got there, I got on the rostrum, and I was sitting there waiting my turn to give the major speech for the evening. And I looked down and uh, I saw all these uh, grown-ups. And then it dawned on me that these kids and the Pop Warner that had come that night for the championship banquet, uh, they couldn't drive, they were too young. So the parents drove them. And the parents didn't want to like, drop them off. They figured, gee, my kid's going to get an award. I'll go too. Oh, by the way, we'll bring your grandmother. And they didn't want to get a babysitter, so they brought the younger kids. So I looked out in the, in the audience, and there were kids that were five, six years old. And then there was the Pop Warner kids that were older. As I had people from the age of uh, probably 65 or 70 all the way down to five years old in the room. My speech that I had prepared was geared for the kids that won the championship. It was going to be over the head of the little kids and maybe uh, a little alarming to the older people. So I, I sat there and I had to, in my mind, I had to uh, put it together so everybody would be comfortable with what I said and how I said it. After that, I realized that I had to be more prepared and had to ask a lot of questions when they asked me to speak. Who am I speaking to? And about what? And and uh, how long? And uh, what are the ages? That's so I could do a little background. I would read some books on speaking. Kind of self-taught and uh, most of my stories are real or partially real. I went back to my boys' school. I went to a private school in, in uh, New England. Kimball Union Academy. It was up in New Hampshire and I went back for the 200th anniversary and uh, they asked me to give a TED talk and I didn't even know who TED was, you know. And I said, a TED talk, yeah? Well, then I had to look up what's a TED talk and what's it about. I had to pick a subject and uh, related to the school and so I learned to do a TED talk and uh, so basically that's what I do now. I, I talk for about 15 minutes and and I try to put some humor in it. I try to make it funny from from their standpoint too. Uh, you got to include everybody. Give me the three components in your mind of a of a good talk. Uh, a little humor to start with, to loosen people up. When I was a young kid, my mom would take me around to auctions. There were a lot of old estates around Syracuse, and they would auction off the contents and. I go with my mother, I was very young, and I listen to these guys, they talk so fast, and they were they had a lot of humor. They kept the crowd on the edge of their seat. And I thought, gee, maybe when I grow up I'll be an auctioneer. That'd be kind of an interesting thing to do. They they were knowledgeable about what, what they were talking about, you know, the furniture or paintings or whatever. My interest came early on to, to speak. One person in my life that did everything for me was my father. Uh, he was fabulous, uh, great on his feet. I'd spent a lot of time with three sports and, and three three different teams to talk to. Uh, pre-game, halftime, uh, he was very good at that. Uh, I listened to him a lot. As a kid, I I would be with him, but in the locker room, and I listened to my dad talk to the football players, and then. My, my greatest uh, teaching was uh, boxing. I, I worked the corner with them as a kid. 
And uh, when the bell rang, I would jump up in the corner and put the stool in and the bucket and uh, towel. And my dad would climb into the ring and he would talk to the boxer. And I listened to him philosophically and how he talked and what he talked about uh, to get that boxer believing in himself. Hmm. And to, to uh, there's no place to hide in there, you know, in that ring. You, there's no substitutions. There's no, there, there's no timeouts. You're out there and you're all by yourself. And uh, my dad was a master at uh, figuring things out and making these uh, kids uh, believe in themselves. I, I can remember once uh, the first round, uh, the boxer came back and he'd taken a pretty good beating in the first round. And, and he had been hit a lot and, and he was way behind in the scoring as a result. And he came back, he sat down on the stool. And I thought, oh boy, this guy's going to be lucky if he doesn't get knocked out or he's not going to win this thing. And the first round was absolutely awful. He, he caught every punch the other guy threw. And my dad would get in the ring and he said, well, you were great, you know. Uh, think you were on that round. And uh, now we got this guy figured out, here's what you gotta do, you know. And uh, you, gotta, you gotta jab jab with your right hand and then you know, usually left hook. And, and he would figure it all out. He'd make this guy believe that uh, he was gonna be capable of the next two rounds he was gonna win and how he was gonna win. And his confidence was picked up by the coach there's not a lot of time in there. Uh, and he'd go out and he did what my dad said. And I know he, the, he, my dad had built confidence in him and taught him what to do. And uh, uh, he, he, he won the vote. And I thought, well, gee, that's pretty good, you know. I didn't think the guy had a prayer after the first round. So the next next fight comes up and, and, and the guy goes out there and he uh, he's not winning either. He's getting hit a lot. And I thought, well, my dad, philosophically, when the round ends, will make this guy believe in himself. And the guy came and sat down on the stool, and he's bleeding, and my dad called him every name in the book and whatnot, and he berated this guy to the point where the guy with the bell rang got off the stool. He was so mad at the coach, he went over and he absolutely slaughtered the other guy. I thought, well, he used two different philosophies. He knew how to read the kids, what to say to get the most out of them, and when to say it. I, I was always fascinated by how he's going to get this, get these kids to believe in themselves and become a better fighter than maybe they were. And in lacrosse, I'd always hear the pregame speeches and whatnot. And uh, so I, I think my best teacher for talking was my father. It's not just winning. It's doing something you have fun with. And I, I think that's one of the things that all of us Syracuse alone would say that we may not have won every game. We not have, may not have won. I thought I played two national championships, eighty-four, eighty-five. We yeah. lost both of them, <laughs> but had fun. I can't say how many times I've I've coached all-star games, north-south game. There was an all-star game coached back in the eighties. I had kids from all different colleges uh, that came up to me and said, "I wish I played for you." You, you put a little fun in the game. I coached the North-South North, North South game once. That used to be an important game. It's all we had. Now there's too much stuff. North-South game, it's all, all, all but gone and forgotten. But years ago, it was very important because it's all we had. And to make the North-South game was the ultimate. You know, you had to be a senior and you had to be chosen. Not every team got a player or two players in the North or South team because there were not enough spots and there were too many colleges. 
we were down at Washington and Lee uh, University where we were practicing three days before the game on Saturday, south of Mason-Dixon line. So I went down there and I had my team given to me. It was by the North-South Committee. I was, I was coaching the North and uh, Charlie Coker was my assistant. I went to a, a novelty stand and I bought a, a rebel flag the first day. I got there just ahead of the team for practice, and I, I strung the rebel flag in the goal. team got there, and they said, what, what's that for? And I said, well, I've left the corners open and the top. When we shoot, don't hit the flag. It's pretty important, you know. And they all laughed about that. I had a kid from Princeton because it was a northern school. He was on the northern team, but he was a southern kid. And he lived in Virginia, but he went to Princeton, so he's on my team. His name was Billy DeButts. I didn't know much about these kids because they were handed to me and was going to be the coach for the North-South game. So we had quite a bit of fun, and uh, I named all my plays after Northern Generals. They, they knew a little bit about history, which I, which I always try to do when we're on the road. I'm naming the plays after Northern Generals, and all of a sudden I look up, and there's a gentleman there from the town. He walked right out on the field. He said, you can't do what you're doing. I said, what am I doing? I'm practicing for a game Saturday. He said, you can't do that to our flag. He gave me help. I said, well, I'm very sorry. I took the flag down, and we continued practice with general's names. I'm always looking for interest on the outside rather than dead time being dead. So I went over to the museum. The Robert E. Lee Museum was in the basement of the church, uh, right there on the campus of Washington Lee. That's where his office was. His office is still there with a rope across the door where you can look in right where General Lee sat, papers on the desk, whatnot. And then out in the uh, other part are glass cases and different things. So I'm looking at it, and uh, the lady running it was an older lady, you know, a real southern drawl and really kind of serious. She said, pardon me, are you Coach Simmons? I said, yes, I am. She said, well, do you realize what you're doing? Yeah, I'm coaching the North team for a game on Saturday. She said, you have Robert E. Lee's great-great-grandson on your team. I said, uh, Lee? No, no, I don't have any Lees. She said, no, through marriage, the name is DeButts. He's a great-great-grandson of Robert E. Lee. And I got him out there shooting at the flag, and I'm calling the place after Northern Generals, and I got Robert E. Lee's great-great-grandson on my team because he went to Princeton. So, boy, I thought, well, I had two practices today, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. So I went out to a bookstore, and I found a book on Robert E. Lee. The afternoon, I called everybody in a big circle, and I, I had a Robert E. Lee book. And I said, gentlemen, I have an apology to make, and I want you all to hear it. And I looked at the kid, and then the kid realized the jig was up, you know, he's kind of looking down. And I said, we happen to have a celebrity on our team whose uh, great-great-grandfather was Robert E. Lee, head of the Confederate Army. And I said, I'm, I'm sorry, son, I didn't know. And he looked at me and he said, well, I wasn't going to tell you. How would you find out? I said, well, the lady in the museum knew what I was doing out here. And she knows you're here. The whole town knows you're here because you're from Virginia. And you're an important person. So I gave the book and everybody a little applause. The game, we're, we're having fun because that's you know, this is the last game they're going to play at that level. I went out the day before the game and I got a couple of cases of champagne. Trash can filled with crushed ice. 
two cases of champagne, very nice. And I had it put in the locker room, I put a towel over it so nobody could see what was in it. So we went out and the Southern team had all the All-Americans. It was like a who's who. And I had no All-Americans first team. I had a couple second, third team. So we went out and played and we won. It was hot, hotter than hell down in Virginia. So I went in the locker room and I pulled a towel off and I said, we're going to celebrate. And so they couldn't believe that I, the coach, went out and did this. And of course, they took the bottles out and they were ice cold, which tasted off of them and popping the corks. <laughs> they say, well, how'd you know we were going to win? And I said, well, I felt we could win. And I said, we did win. Had we not won, we'd still have the champagne. We celebrate when we win, and we party when we lose. And that's what we do in the tailgates, I said, at Syracuse. I had the best tailgates ever. Tommy Hayes at Rutgers came to me one day, and he said, uh, I saw you were here yesterday. I said, no, I wasn't. He said, yeah, I saw the truck. I said, Syracuse lacrosse on it. I said, well, we always set it ahead of time with the cooker and whatnot, and the Mike Garvey drove the truck, and he got there early, and I always send the truck down early ahead of the team. It's on a brown one day and beating him pretty good. And uh, we had a tent also later on in life. Beating Brown pretty good. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, I could see the smoke curling up the third period. And we were ahead by eight or ten goals. And I said to John Desco, uh, I guess the game's over. He said, no, game, we got quite a bit to go. I said, no, it's over. Can you smell the steaks burning? And the parents know. After the game, this kid from Brown came over, and I, I walked with him back to the locker room. We walked by this tent, the table, and desserts, salads, and steaks on the cooker. He said, what's this all about? I said, what's what the parents do? The kids are hungry. They haven't eaten in a while, and we kind of celebrate, celebrate friendship. He said, gee, you know, this time of day, the, the dining hall's closed here. I'm going to have to walk downtown and find some food. He said, I went to the wrong university. <laughs> <laughs> I got to know the parents pretty well, but we did. We, we celebrated when we won, and we party when we lost. And did you ever meet Daryl Gross? No, I never met him. I never yeah. about though. And he didn't know much about lacrosse, because he's a California boy, you know. I was having an alumni get-together in New York City, and uh, it was a fundraiser, and we had a little raffle and whatnot. He said, I'm going to go down be with you for the weekend down in New York. I said, fine, you get the chance to meet some alumni and some good friends and some parents are going to come. And I said, you know, we never shake hands. He said, oh, you don't? You're not very friendly? I said, we're very friendly. We hug. Most teams shake hands. He's over there against the wall, you know, because he's new and he'd never been to a lacrosse party ever. And and uh, he didn't know much about the team or the coach. He's having a few drinks, and he wanted to meet everybody because he's the new AD. He wasn't saying much, and he finally came over to me and said, you know, you're right, I've watched people coming in. They haven't seen one another in a while, or, you know, they weren't on the team together, but they're all circus alone, lacrosse. He said, you know, everybody hugs. You're right, I didn't see anybody shaking hands. I said, well, that's the nature of the game. That's the nature of Syracuse game. That's a wrap for this show. Thanks for listening. 
to hear more content like it, go to fredopi.com. If you have questions about advertising and sponsoring this show, contact us at fdopie at gmail.com. That's fdopie at gmail.com. My next book, The Super 7, Principles to Grow, Win with People, and Be More Creative, is about to roll out. It's a book that will help you managing your schedule, communication, dealing with criticism, learning how to give criticism, learning how to organize yourself. That's what's in that book. I'm excited for that bad boy to drop, and it's going to be happening very soon as an audio book, a Kindle, and a hard copy. We'll have some pre-sales set up in the weeks to come. 